doesn't accept that definition or that difference, then it's a very easy thing to write. Did you have left on rebuttal? How much time was left on rebuttal? Good afternoon. Welcome to the Court of Appeals. Please be Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please When I read it, what significance is procedural posture? The court doesn't belong to the judges. It doesn't belong to the lawyers. It doesn't belong to the courthouse crowd. It belongs to the people of this state. Welcome to Georgia Appellate Review. My name is Ryan Locke, and I am here with our very first guest ever, Andrew Fleischman. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure to be here. Andrew is an appellate attorney at Ross and Pines. He's had over 50 appeals, um, and he's just an all-around excellent guy. He was an attorney with the Georgia Public Defender Council prior to entering private practice, where he was really a, a standard bearer for all public defender appellate attorneys. Well, thank you very much. That's a very nice introduction. Hi. Um, now, now, let's see if you can live up to it. <laughs> no pressure at all. It's great. Um, so, so, Andrew, I mean, tell me about, um, I mean, tell me about why you became a lawyer, how you got into appellate practice, uh, that kind of thing. So, you know, I got a philosophy degree. There's nothing you can do with that but go to law school. I mean, you're not going to open a philosophy store. That's not an option. So I went to uh, law school and I was going to be a bankruptcy attorney until I went over to the Atlanta Municipal Court for a summer, just like a little internship. And it was like the most messed up place I've ever been in my entire life. It, it ran like a Tanzanian or Nigerian court, would, like, like a bad part of the country. You know, you had people getting sort of like swamped in there. Uh, judges were giving them no bonds or ridiculously high bonds they couldn't make and keeping them there for months at a time. And it made me mad enough that I wanted to be a public defender. So that was kind of my goal. Um, I did a year with uh, Head Thomas Weapon Willis, working for Bubba Head doing DUIs before I found a job in Paulding. And that was just a great experience being a public defender. I really enjoyed it. And and when did you move from from trial-level public defense to the appellate section. Well, uh, to, so I was kind of always an appellate attorney. So even when I was at in private practice, you know, it's kind of the work that nobody wants to do. It's the broccoli of the legal profession. So, you know, my first week at Head Thomas Webb and Willis, they were just like, oh, we got this brief due in like a week. We just need you to write it. And I did. My boss was like, oh, this is terrible, but we don't have time to fix it. And we, we actually won that one. It worked out okay. But so when I went to Paulding, I was kind of their appellate guy and I would go door to door and, and help people write their motions and figure their stuff out. I didn't start with the appellate division until like 2015. They were just, they just needed somebody. And I decided I'd go over and do that full time. I remember my, my first appeal, it was kind of similar where I, I graduated from University of Georgia for law school mm-hmm. and, and, and it was when I was at the public defender in Atlanta. And and they got me by saying, "Hey, do you want us to pay you to drive out to Athens?" And I was like, "That sounds great." And then they just <laughs> dumped a shoplifting appeal on my desk. They're like, "Congratulations!" Well, how did it go? I lost, <laughs> <laughs> but it was. It, I mean, it, it, you know, it, it kind of lit the lit the fire inside me to say, "Hey, this is this is kind of cool." It's, a, it's um, a lot more fun than people say. Yes. Yes. Um, so. I want to I want to learn about how you how you approach your appellate practice. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me 
when a case walks in the door and they hire you, tell me how you start to determine what you're going to do with that case. I mean, the very first thing you do, and this is probably everybody, you, you go and you find the indictment and you read it to see what your client's actually charged with. And, you know, the language is always so messed up. There's almost always some demur issue out there somewhere. Um, then I get the transcript and I always start with a closing argument. Uh, that should be the first thing you read, in my opinion, when you have it, because it tells the story of the case. So you know what's important when you go back and you're reading through the facts to see what was a prosecutor relying on, what was a defense attorney fighting about. Um, and really, from that point on, I just have a big old whiteboard in my office. And I just Every time something seems messed up, I write down the page number, and then I come back to it and figure out what I'm going to raise. Now, do you take notes on the transcript as you're going through, or do you handwrite on it? Or I tell me about that. I uh, just sort of when I read the transcript by the end, I typically have a pretty good idea of what's in it. Um, and my, my transcripts are always scanned in. So uh, I don't really take notes. I just use the, the find function to go back and find stuff later on. Which do you do you draft the fact section for, you know, the inevitable brief then or. Oh, yeah. Do you. <laughs> you I mean, that's you want to do that while your memory is fresh and you're trying to tell the best possible story. Right. So. Uh, you know, I use a lot of passive voice. It's definitely the case that uh, a body was found stabbed 30 times, not, not the defendant allegedly stabbed the body 30 times. You know, that's a little better. Um, so, yeah. Uh, w- what about you? What's your method? Well, you know, I, I, go, I take notes on the transcript as I'm going through mm-hmm. and then and then I put the tra- and then I almost never look back at the transcript mm-hmm. except once I figure out what my issues are, I may go back to look at the actual language or quote it or whatever. But um, but yeah, well, cause it, it was that same that first appeal. I read the transcript mm-hmm. and then put it away for eight months, and then right. <laughs> you know it's like, well, let me read this again because I can't remember half the things that are in it. Um, but yeah, so I'm 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 always impressed with with people who kind of have a good enough memory to to be able to navigate through that without very close notes. Well, I'd say the, the best appellate lawyers I know do, do digests, really. Like a lot of people in the appellate division would have, at the end of their reading, a 40 or 50-page document just laying out everything that happens in the case. And there's a lot of upside to that. Um, it just doesn't come naturally to me. I just ended up going back and trying to tell the story. And yeah, I don't know, rereading the transcript, which, which I always end up doing, I end up reading it twice, is beneficial. I feel like I end up knowing the case pretty well. That's the hope anyway. Now, do you have any pet issues that you seem to always raise in your appeal? Like every case you see, oh, here's a comment on silence or something like that. Oh, gosh. Um, No, the one, my pet issue that I'm like obsessed with is always out-of-state convictions used to recidivize somebody. So there's a really important federal line of cases, you know, Apprendi and Shepard and all that, that says that you can't use out-of-state convictions. You can't have a judge look back at old convictions to find new facts. Um, and oftentimes that's what Georgia judges are doing. So I can get a lot of sentencing relief for clients by kicking out out of state recidivized convictions. Um, so classic example, I had a guy who was, uh, charged with a, you know, pretty serious felony and he was charged with four felonies in Florida. Um, but those were not felonies here. Like for instance, he was alleged to have hit his domestic partner in Florida on a first time offense there. Um, it's a, it's a felony, regardless of whether you've hit the same person twice. In Georgia, it's required that it be the same person. So I was like, well, this indictment doesn't say that he hit the same person twice, just that he has had more than one domestic violence conviction. Therefore, it wouldn't be a felony under Georgia law, and you can't look into the facts to figure out if it would be. 
Um, the judge bought it for that case, but not many judges really like that Shepard Apprendi categorical way of looking at cases. When you when you're researching these issues, mm-hmm. do you um, t- tell me how you do that? I mean, do you kind of pull language into a document? Do you print out the cases and, and handwrite on them? What's what's your workflow for that? Oh gosh, yeah, I just go I go to Lexis, uh, which I'm using now, and find all the best cases. I copy and paste the best pieces of language from those cases into my what will eventually be my brief, so I can just go back down later and copy and paste snips and put them back up. Um, that's usually my method. What, what about you? And, and so you're, you're going, I, you know, Andrew, I asked the question. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, no, what no, I was asked cause you know, in, in law school and, and kind of in the, when I was public defender, I would print out cases and I would highlight them and I would write kind of the point of the case at the top. And then later I would sit down with this like mound of paper and <laughs> have to go through it. You know, and, and so like, I don't know, in, in some ways that was nice just to physically have it mm-hmm. and be able to physically move it around. But, but then also, you know, when I started my firm and I said, all right, we're going to be paperless from the start, it was kind of, you know, I was like, well, we're paperless in all respects, except these appeal cases, which are, you know, three bankers boxes of crap that I have to lug around. So yeah, it's, it's a real pain. Yeah. You know, right. I mean, and like. You know, I mean, it's okay if you're handling a couple appeals, but if if you have a bunch, then you know that can kind of start to blow up and take up space. Um, <laughs> yeah. Now I, I kind of work from a um, a outline that I will eventually turn into the brief, but it ends up not being the brief itself. Okay. Uh, I, I don't even outline really. I kind of just write. You know, the way I figure it, I'm just like a I'm just a waiter. You know, I can't really improve the issues that I bring into you. All I can do is not trip and fall on the way. <laughs> so, you know, I just, uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if my briefs are even any good, but they, they seem to have done the trick. <laughs> I feel like that's, that's almost every brief I'm right. I'm like, this is either the best piece of writing I've ever done or it's charitably a C minus. And, you know, you just hope that when you go have your argument, you see the judges holding it and hopefully getting something out of it. Um, you know, it's, it strikes me that the judges are at least reading my briefs because whatever their other flaws might be, they are short. Um, and that goes a long way. Never once ever heard a judge complain that my brief was too short. And, and I mean, and I think that that makes, that makes a lot of sense where the, you know, what we're looking at on appeal it sometimes can be so narrow that you don't need to puff it up with anything, you know, with a, you know, 10 page statement of facts or something. Or like, um, listen, they know ineffective assistance of counsel by heart. So I'm just going to say counsel is ineffective. I'm going to have a prejudice section. I'm going to have a deficiency section and uh, I'm not going to quote Strickland. So they know what I'm talking about, which, but you know, that, that quintessential prosecutor brief, which is like nine block quotes laying out the standard and all this stuff. Uh, you know, it's it's a nightmare to read through because you're like four pages in before they're talking about your case at all. You mean there's there's not a path to victory with eight paragraphs of boilerplate and two paragraphs of thought and then the end? <laughs> well, there's a great – I could say confidently that if you were a prosecutor, you'd, you would win 95% of the time. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean that's, that's, yeah. that's what we're doing wrong. That's <laughs> Our mistake was representing people who were accused of things uh, or convicted yeah. of them. Uh, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's it. 
I want to move to oral argument because you, you know, you are on my short list of people who have really a lot of experience um, in oral argument. And and I want to play this. Here is how you described. um, This is in Simpkins, which you argued last month. This is kind of the first words out of your mouth to the court. My name is Andrew Fleischman. I'm here on behalf of Damian Simpkins. And this is a really straightforward issue. The defendant was convicted on the basis of evidence in violation of the Confrontation Clause, and his lawyer didn't do anything to stop it. His lawyer was ineffective. Now, I, I hear so few lawyers just have such a, a plain, simple, get-to-the-point introduction. And, and when I hear you say it, I love it. Like, how do you get to that point, and what's your thinking behind it? Oh, I torture everyone around me by talking about the case relentlessly until <laughs> I can boil it down really well. Um, and I, I try to find the best pithy phrase. Also, I lie at the beginning of every oral argument. I say this is a straightforward issue because that forces me. <laughs> you know, it's actually pretty complicated, but it forces me. If I say it's straightforward, then the next word that my la- mouth better be really simple and easy to understand. Um, and, and, you know, I, I'd say, have you ever judged a moot court competition or done something? Um, yeah. There's that period where they're talking and you have no idea what the hell you're talk- they're talking about. And you're getting more and more frustrated and irritated. Uh, I just imagine judges feel that way all the time. And all they want you to do is just tell them what the case is about and lay out what you're going to do. And yet almost nobody does it. In fact, I'd say like half of all oral arguments at the Supreme Court of Georgia, this is just torture, is somebody thanking the Supreme Court for being nice enough to have them and what an honor it is to be there today. And oh my God, none of them care. <laughs> like they, they just want you to, to tell them about the, uh, your case so they can go home. That's it. Like, like five minutes of throat clearing is like Justice Thomas is getting more and more frustrated at not being able to ask what he wants to ask. Oh, well, he can ask what he wants to ask. He will stop you. Um, I think I've seen more than one case now where Nami's is like, you can keep talking about this if you want to, but it's nothing to do with your case. <laughs> so, point, point taken. Yeah, but, but that's, that's the dream. If you can just boil it down enough, then you'll, you'll be more persuasive. Because they won't be annoyed with you for three or four minutes. How do you prepare for oral argument? Do you create a separate document? Do you, you know, do do you outline anything? I talk to myself in my car for a month. I would say I just um, in the shower, in the car, I pace around my house and I just practice different ways of saying things, uh, answers to questions that I'm worried about. Um, I don't want to write it down. I don't want. I don't want it to seem over rehearsed. But I want it to be so that like, if I'm getting that question, I knock it out of the park, hopefully, but I don't seem like I have a pat answer that is memorized. Um, and for that – really how, just- how often is it that they – I was going to say, how often is it that they ask questions that you've rehearsed and then you're like, oh, yes, and you're ready to kind of wheel that out? Most, most times. I can usually anticipate – okay, so one great advantage I have is that I worked with the appellate division, and those people are not only great lawyers. They're a little bit mean. It's – amazing to talk to them about cases because they say, oh, that your point there is crap or, you know, what about this? I mean, have you thought about that? And they're, they're pretty aggressive. Like you have a room full of smart people. Everybody wants to show they're the smartest one. And that leads to really productive preparation for oral argument because they will really tear into you if you don't have a good answer for something. Uh, I also do a practice moot for every oral argument. Um, that's and who do, you use, who do you use to moot? Oh, the appellate division. Uh, even after I moved to Ross and Pines, I will still 
get them in a room to help me out with that because there's nobody better. I've tried doing it with, with people in my office and other people, and they're all just too kind. Uh, what you really need is somebody who recognizes that what you really want is them to tear into you and to really harp on your weakest points and force you to try to deal with them head on. Uh, that being said, you know, sometimes you, you have what you have. I mean, I had an argument the day before Simpkins where I was like, okay, well, saying that something is the scene of the crime means that the crime occurred there. And uh, I, I don't think I changed any hearts or minds with that one. So what can you do? You know, I mean, sometimes you have to become like almost an English professor with the language and no one is jumping on board. And then you just kind of <laughs> I mean, yeah, what can I say? I mean, if you look at cases, there's a difference between the scene of the crime and the crime scene used differently. Uh, but uh, there's no dictionary I could run to. There was nothing I could do like that. And so it was a tough argument. Uh, and I definitely came in being like, okay, like I'm just going to try to get through this, do the best that I can for my client. and hope nothing terrible happens here. Do you switch up your approach if you if you come in and you know are, uh, these are all really bad issues? <laughs> I but, typically but, you know, I asked for oral argument and and they gave it to me and I'm here. <laughs> what do you do with that? Um, I've never had an oral argument where I didn't have something that I thought that I could win on that it would make sense. Um, so I mean, if if my case is weaker, then I'm less likely to want to have a long rebuttal, for instance, to open up last minute questions that I might not be able to answer. Um, apart from that, my prep is the same. I'm just going through trying to describe why I win in the simplest way. That's, that's really it. Just can you, within one minute, explain why you would win if you win. Now, what, what do you think are the worst things to do in oral argument? And I know this might be a long list. It's a, it's a really long list. Okay. The, the thanking thing at the beginning is absolutely terrible. Um, probably the number one thing not to do, and any judge will tell you this, is to be evasive. The answer to every question should be a clear affirmative or negative. Um, so the judge asks you, well, do you think it would be the same if we did it like this? Don't dodge. Don't say that's not the facts of this case. Say, yeah, that would be different. Um, if you can own a bad answer and make it a fast bad answer, you actually divert the court's attention from it. Um, or you try to. Okay, so Justice Grant uh, this month ago was like, oh, um, wouldn't your case be a lot better if the language was X? And I was like, yep, it would be a lot better, Your Honor. <laughs> on to my next point. What else yeah, can I, you say? I remember that, yeah. You know, that's your, the hope there is that the court kind of is like, all right, well, he's honest about that. But if, you, if I dodged that, let's say I was like, oh, I don't know if it'd be better. And I got some follow-up questions about it. Suddenly, that'd be like a, kind of an embarrassing focal point of the argument. And prosecutors are terrible about this. They really struggle to concede the concedable points. Um, the other really bad thing is to say, oh, I don't know the record that well. It's been too long since I read the, the brief. I mean, God, Justice Fletcher did that. He went up and did an argument. Just as Namias gave him a hard time. And that was in the Daily Report for a week, uh, that back and forth. Um, some other terrible stuff. Uh, anytime that you're getting a question and you say, I'll get to that or I'll move on, like you act like you're resentful about the question, that makes no sense. Those questions are the best thing going for you. They tell you what the court's thinking. They tell you whether you need to write a response brief or to you know, supplement the record somehow. Um, and even if a judge is really giving you a hard time and he's just basically cross-examining you and trying to put you into a corner, if you're just honest and straightforward about it, it won't hurt you too badly. That's my theory anyway. We'll see. <laughs> but you're pretty, um, I don't want to say informal, but you're not overly formal when you are arguing in front of the court. No. Was that a conscious decision or is that oh, just kind of your style? 
Well, it's it's both my style and a conscious decision. I mean, the the judges don't speak formally. They aren't using highfalutin language or trying to talk like lawyers. Uh, if you're speaking really simply, my theory is, and informally, people will understand you faster. And when they understand you faster, they're more persuaded by what you're saying. Um, so I will never say indicate or utilize uh, when I could say, oh, showed or used. Uh, because by talking simply, I'm encouraging the, the a focus on my legal arguments, not how smart I might think I am. Um, I remember reading a brief once where in the first paragraph, there was the word internecine. And I was just like, oh my God, like, I can't delete this fast enough. This one word makes me dislike the author. Um, and that's not ideal. Like you want to, you want to sound like a, like a smart person talking to another smart person, or at least that's my goal. Do you, do you plan out your rebuttal? Do you have something in the can or is it just oh, whatever no. comes up? Whatever comes up. Because I mean, you're waiting for the state to say something wrong. They often do. So you kind of want to come back. Uh, now I've definitely had rebuttals that didn't go great where I, I thought I, I kind of hammered the wrong point. Uh, or whatever, maybe prep would be better. But it's, to me, like rebuttal should be quite short anyway. You should just be nailing whatever you think the state's points that are nailable are. And then once again, having a prepped closing. That is something that everybody should do. Um, you should say, because X is true, we respectfully request a new trial is a really good way to end every closing argument and you should do it that way. Uh, and then say thank you and sit down. Um, a lot of people end with sort of like a, you know, basically a balloon deflating sound. <laughs> Just, oh, or it looks like my time's about up. Um, oh, all that meta commentary. That's also terrible where people are like, oh, well, it looks like I have only you know, three minutes left. But then you keep talking like, just talk about the case. Don't talk about the, the clock that everybody can see because uh, nobody's impressed by that. Oh, don't use justices' names. That's another one. Um, I don't know why people feel this need to say, Oh, justice so and so, but you are just waiting for the day you screw up and call somebody by the wrong name. Just say your honor. You're never wrong when you say your honor. You won't accidentally say judge instead of justice. And uh, if you just make that a rule, you won't divert brain power thinking about it during the argument. <laughs> I feel like like you can just make sure you know who Justice Namius is, and that'll get you eighty percent of the way there. <laughs> well, that's, then, that's true. And then everyone else, you know, your honor, your honor. Oh, he's so much fun to have at an argument. It's always sad for me if he's not there uh, because he really ensures you've got a hot bench. He's always read the briefs uh, and he like legitimately cares about reaching the right result. Even if he and I might disagree about what it is. It's really, it's fun having him there. And I have to say, we have like a ridiculously good Supreme Court. I, I mean, we're a little spoiled, but if you watch other courts and you read their writing, it is not as good. Um, like uh, I was watching the Florida Supreme Court this case about whether the governor could remove a prosecutor's power to decide whether or not somebody got out of the death penalty, uh, was charged with a death penalty type case. And they just didn't have, give that same impression of having really carefully read the briefs or considered them. It seemed sort of, you know, maybe outcome oriented. Uh, anyway, this court, I feel confident they're actually reading the law. And that's, that's a big thing. I, I feel like as a advocate, like the... The absolute worst thing is if you're getting nailed from all sides, you know, like every judge up there is against you. Mm -hmm. And then you're just like, oh, no. The second worst thing is no one asks you a question. <laughs> my, my least favorite thing is when a judge throws me a, a lifeline or a softball and I don't recognize it. 
that always feels the worst. Because I come back and look at it later. I was like, oh, he was trying to help me out. I didn't answer that question right at all. Uh, how, how long do you wait until you watch the video of your argument? Oh, I watch it immediately, as soon as I can. And then I watch it like 30 more times to like just critique myself and be mad at myself. And But I, you know, I learn a lot doing that. I notice my little ticks and the stuff that I don't like. Um, and, you know, I think I've improved uh, as I've done this uh, just by really figuring out what I hate about myself when I'm doing these things. I, I mean, I, I think it's a it's a very valuable service to be able to look at those both for if if you don't have a lot of experience and, you know, maybe you're going up there for the first time, you can kind of see how it is. Yeah. But also for self-reflection, I wish that um, I, I kind of wish I was videotaped at the trial level, too, oh, because. Yeah. Like it would be invaluable to be able to watch all the stupid things that I do, you know. It's tough to really transcript realize. even, isn't it? Yeah, I, I feel like I do not. The, the transcript is only like, the transcript is the shadow on the cave wall. You know, it is not the actual thing. Well, um, they really don't capture the inflection or the pauses that might have made what you said make sense. So you go back, you read your argument and it's like gibberish. Do you, how much input do you take from the client on how you're approaching the appeal? Um, so I don't, I, okay, I take a ton of input from the client. I ask them about their case. I ask them what felt most unfair to them. And I always try to, whatever that issue is that feels most unfair, to give them a good legal reason if I'm not going to raise it. Uh, and especially when it comes to fact stuff like ineffective assistance of counsel, which I raise in basically every case, I really want to make sure that I'm tracking down all the leads. Because I had a, a case once where I did ineffective assistance. I had some pretty good evidence that got left out. So I talked to the guy again after the hearing. He's like, oh, by the way, this guy also came to my house the next day and tried to shoot at my mom. I'm like, Nobody heard about that. You never told me that. I hadn't spent enough time talking to him for him to, I guess, feel comfortable telling me this very important fact. Um. So yeah, you you want to you really want to talk to your client a lot. I know it sucks, <laughs> but they it's not just I think the case but they they know it better than you. And, you know, and, and I think you're 100 percent right. Where you don't, you know, I mean the the client will not you know sit down and tell you like, well, you know, I think that there was a you know that the the jury pool was not a representative sample. Let me tell you why. And like this case. I mean, you know, they're not going to know. But yeah, I think questions like what, what seemed not right, mm -hmm. what was the you know what part of the trial did you really think didn't work for you, mm -hmm. what you know how how your lawyer was, yeah. um, can I mean can yield very valuable information. The, uh, I mean it seems like there's always some pet kind of jailhouse lawyer issue that I always have <laughs> to address. I think re recently it's been if the indictment has not been filed in open court, then it's void. Oh, yeah. They all love that issue, um, which should be a fine pretrial issue, maybe, <laughs> in like one case. Uh, but yeah, they are, they're obsessed with that issue. I've been a habeas about that issue a couple of times. And I just, you know, I say the same thing every time. You know, at the time when I researched it, uh, it didn't seem strong. It seems like a lot of people are raising it now. Maybe I was mistaken, but probably not. I think that issue is probably a dead issue well you know who we really have to blame is whoever won on that issue 
when, um, what courthouse was it that it was like closed? It wasn't open yet to the public, but they were returning indictments in it. Oh yeah. Uh, also like whatever case, that case was, it's always an issue with their arrest warrant that, that they're mad about. They're like, Oh, the arrest warrant said it was for theft, but then they indicted me for murder. So, I mean, obviously we got to undo the entire case. It's really it's a it's an art trying to explain to a client why a pet issue doesn't work because oftentimes these aren't people who have been reading their whole lives and they've thrown themselves into the legal the law library and they feel really good about that and proud and you have to give them you have to let them keep some of that pride some of that dignity which is why I always try to give them like a really reasoned response if I can. Um, oh yeah, I, I will write you know <laughs> you know page upon page explain you know. Saying, hey, you you think that maybe these twelve issues are in here? I I don't feel comfortable raising them, but let me explain to you why. And then it's almost like a you know a law school final exam when I'm writing it. But I find that that I mean it also really helps me clarify my thinking, and it helps me just kind of become more familiar with you know the you know, criminal law. Right. Um, the the most frustrating thing for me though is always like the client who won't give me a version of events at all. Like they're, they're trying to hold it in reserve. And I'm like, the time to hold it in reserve was before trial. Just tell me like if you were there or what was going on so I can get a sense for what issues are going to be worthwhile. Like don't make me say the lawyer was ineffective for not testing a piece of evidence when it's going to come back with your DNA. <laughs> like uh, don't make me go chase down a gun that's going to have your fingerprints on it. Uh, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, but some clients, I guess they just think that, you know, if you believe they're innocent, You'll work harder, and that their goal is to persuade you they're innocent. Um, I don't care that much. I don't think most appellate attorneys do. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of um, a lot of criminal defense lawyers you know, view it more as a you know you are you are stepping in the breach, protecting these persons' rights, and doesn't matter what you know if 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 it was a, a you know if there's no error in the trial, great. If there was error in the trial, then they need to reverse it and. And that's kind of what we're focused on in the, at a system-wide level. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, though I will say I have more innocent clients that I'd like. Like clients where I'm pretty sure they didn't do it. Um, I get like one a year, and that's way too many. That's too stressful. That yeah. Is. Um, my, my biggest one, this guy, Kelvin Bradley, we, we hang out. Um, and he was at a funeral for a friend. And uh, this this crack dealer came out there in her car, and she starts running people down in her car. She's really mad at her boyfriend for like selling some crack and not giving her the proceeds. And uh, so after she hits a woman and almost runs over a kid, my client shoots her. And at his trial, they did not raise self defense or defense of others. Jerry never heard it. So the dude gets convicted, gets sentenced to twenty years in prison for basically stepping up and saving a bunch of people's lives. Uh, that case, I, I don't know. I, I just felt terrible about it. Uh, and, you know, Fulton being Fulton, they they felt like that was basically the right result. Do you ever, I mean, here's something that I struggle with on appeals, where you have a case like that where you say, I'm pretty sure, like, factually, this guy is innocent, or at the very least, not guilty of what he was convicted of. And I have a, I have a you know, Maybe credibility was all over the map with these witnesses or whatever. But then you're up against that hard place where they say, look, we're going to take the facts in the light most favorable to the verdict. And there's no appellate ground for saying the jury got it wrong. 
And so you can, oh. you know, try to backdoor it into other issues. I've always struggled with, I really want to, I have written and then deleted more times than I want to say the, the jury just got it wrong argument. And then realize <laughs> I'm just, I'm just wasting time with the court. They're not going to deal with it. Yeah. I've, I've never raised a jury got it wrong argument. I understand, you know, but I do think ineffective assistance of counsel is really your way to do that. To talk about the story that wasn't told because Typically, in my experience, if an innocent person is convicted, something got missed. Um, you know, that lawyer didn't raise immunity defense and didn't uh, didn't raise defense of others. And also the prosecutor said 12 times in closing that the defendant was guilty because he refused to talk to police. Uh, <laughs> that was like the beginning and end of her closing. So, uh, you know, you, you find something. Um, or I had another case. These two women were accused of murdering a guy. Uh, and this medical examiner is like, oh, this was definitely a murder. And I just talked to another medical examiner and she was like, no, this is actually really consistent with the guy shooting himself in the head. So you, you just have to go out and be a factual investigator in those cases because the law probably won't help you. Uh-oh, Andrew, you know what that sound means. <laughs> <laughs> it's time for the lightning round. Now, no All one right. knows what the lightning round is because this is the first time we're doing it. So in the lightning round, I am going to ask for your opinion on uh, certain appellate uh, issues, um, not substantive legal issues, but just issues in dealing with appeals. And, and you're going to have to reply whether you're, you're with it or not. Um, and if you're wrong, then I'll tell you. <laughs> Christ, what a relief. <laughs> All right. So, Andrew, welcome to the lightning round. All right. First question is parenthetical cleaned up are you on board or not yeah i'm cool with it i have no strong feelings i think that's the right answer i mean i think it's like the i have been ignoring internal quotations without telling anyone for years (laughs) and this i guess this is a nice way to let people know that i'm with it you know, like, hey, I'm on appellate Twitter too. You but know? appellate Twitter is so excited about this. It's like the monolith at the beginning of the Space Odyssey. Like everybody's like, oh my God, he was cleaned up in this court opinion. I mean, it's cool. Uh, let's not nerd out about it too hard. It's, it's, it's just one option among many. You would also just do shorter quotes. I'm going to give you an easy one. Oxford comma. Oh yeah, I'm pro, but everybody is, right? I, I mean, I'm sh- there. if you're not pro Oxford comma – just take whatever device you're listening to and just throw it directly into the ground because <laughs> you don't deserve uh, a podcast or running water or electricity. I mean, the Oxford comma is the only way to go. Uh, the only it, way to go. It, seems, it seems pretty clarifying. Uh, it, better than not. All right. Custom font or whatever crappy font that uh, the court makes you use? Um, I use Century School Book 13 point. Uh, it's worked well for me. I, I also like Garamond, but the italics are a little messy. I hear that. Yeah. All right. Hyperlinks to cases in your brief. Yes, I do that. And I hyperlink to the record. And the court tells me they don't care. They don't like it. So I stopped. Uh, <laughs> wow. Really? Just, I talked to Justice Grant about it. She was given a lunch. I was like, so, I, you know, I've been hyperlinking my stuff. What do you think? She's like, we all read it on paper. It does make a difference. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. Glad I spent those extra three three hours doing that. <laughs> we need to we, we need to get Judge Dillard on here too. Uh, to yeah. defend. Probably the only I mean, I don't know if anyone if anyone's reading briefs on iPads, it's them. 
Well, Justice Melton says that he just he scrolls down to the relevant argument section, and that's what he reads of your brief. Uh, so maybe he's doing it, but really, only one judge is going to be closely scrutinizing your stuff, and it seems like the majority of them aren't aren't clicking those hyperlinks. Now, how do you how do you hyperlink to the record? Um, if you're at the Supreme Court of Georgia or the Court of Appeals and you have an e-file, you can just uh, put a footnote in and then say page such and such, and then you'll footnote to the record. They'll still have to find the page on the record. I'm still trying to find a way to go directly to the correct page. But it makes it really easy for them to go straight where you're looking um, while they're reading your brief. And I think that's valuable. So you'll like you'll hyperlink to like that volume right. or like that PDF, whatever. Exactly. And then they would have to scroll down to okay. Yeah. All right. Um all right, next lightning round issue. Uh, screenshots, photos, other junk and briefs, or... Oh, yeah. Um, I, I had an immunity motion just recently. Uh, the guy beat the hell out of my client, and she allegedly scratched his face. So page one of my brief after like a paragraph is a big picture of my client's face all beaten up. Because you know, what more? What can I say that's better than that? And, and I bet you love hearing that they, they print it out and then they're looking at some almost indecipherable photo and they're like, what, what the hell? It looks beautiful on an iPad, but you know, <laughs> that would be frustrating. <laughs> yeah. I haven't done it. Uh, as, Oh, I did it in one appellate brief. It was about, um, it was about blood draws, the forcible blood draws. And so I put up a, a picture of a guy being forcibly held down to be given a blood draw. I'm like, this is what it looks like. I think there's, there's value in knowing that it's not some, you know, some gentle little thing. Like we're strapping people down and they're screaming and we're stealing their blood. All right. Always oral argument. Do you always request it? Um, I will request it in any case where there's not overwhelming evidence of guilt, though. Maybe I shouldn't say that if, if you're listening courts that uh, don't, <laughs> don't read too much into it. Maybe I'm wrong, but um, yeah, if I've got a case, um, you know, I had a case that came back where the Supreme Court was like, uh, well, the defense theory was that the victim stabbed herself in the neck seven times, then blindfolded herself and then threw the knife away. Um, that was the defense theory. Okay. I didn't ask for oral argument in that case because, you know, I was trying my hardest to find an issue, but I was kind of aware of how it was going to go. Do you use uh, table of contents authorities or not? I don't, I don't really understand the point, because uh, once again, like you can just control F to find all the all the authorities I've raised. Um, I don't know. What about you? No, I don't. Not at all. I, I mean, I don't know. I think like you know, you look at like a fancy law firm's brief, mm-hmm. and like there's 20 pages of like all this nonsense. And yeah, I mean, I could see if it's it's particularly complicated. Maybe if it's like if if you have cause to ask to exceed the page limits, you should oh, probably put a table of contents in there. But then again, you should probably seriously rethink asking to extend the page. You know, like God, God bless you if you have a case that's so important or complicated that you need it. I mean, um, maybe if you're a death penalty lawyer and you're trying to preserve all this stuff for federal habeas, maybe then. But yeah, otherwise, I don't believe in raising more than three issues, almost ever. Well, shoot, um, you, I think that that is – oh, yeah, well, that's the next one. Every issue or winning issues? <laughs> Just winning issues. Uh, winning <laughs> issues, issues that can win and issues that have an emotional impact that will lead to winning. Um, so, okay, let's say I've got a great Brady issue. I can show this cop is dirty uh, but probably wouldn't lead, make a different outcome. Like I'm probably not going to win on that materiality element. I'll put it in because I want the court to feel like something unfair has happened to my client, um, and it's not frivolous. Uh, right. 
On the other hand, like minor hearsay stuff or, you know, oh, maybe counsel should have objected to this thing, even though it's almost certainly not going to be held deficient. Uh, no, I think that distracts from the winning arguments. They, they don't read your whole brief. They read maybe 20 pages of your brief. And I want to choose which, which 20 pages those are by writing only 20 pages. I, I almost want to like just bold the section that in the enumeration of errors, just, be, you know, enumeration one, enumeration two, enumeration three, parentheses, this is the good one. And then enumeration four, and then we're done. And then they can just, you hyperlink at the beginning, just like, hey, if you only have half an hour, this is what you should be thinking about. <laughs> well, they, do they you know. Put, you did. Oh, no, no, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, strong, you put strong issues first. Um, unless there's some strong storytelling or chronological reason why you want to put another issue first, you put your best issue first. They they know which issue I think is the best. Do you um, put and my introduction in section will have it. Oh, well, there we go. I was going to say, do you put an introduction somewhere? I do. I typically try to find 75 words or less to explain why I went on what I think is my best issue. Um, and I, once again, it kind of cuts down on that time where the court is reading your brief and getting mad at you trying to figure out what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Also, like if you're at oral argument uh, or you're at the trial level, judges most judges aren't going to read everything that you've written. But if they have that one-page summary in front of them, they have a pretty good idea of what you're talking about, even if they just read that. Do you punt on the fact section or punt? And, and punt I mean, like in the sense of you know, uh, sometimes my fact sections are very short. Mm-hmm. where it's like I know, like you read this, and, and it's kind of set up enough so you know what's going on in the case. But I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to give you some comprehensive look because I know the state's going to have a five-page fact section <laughs> with every terrible fact in there. And you know, do you try to do you try to counteract the the state's yes. fact section? Do you it's tell me very, how you do that? I mean, it's just all about the order in which you put the facts and the level of detail you use, and whether you use active voice and passive voice. So, yeah, the part where my client is fleeing from police. I'm going to say a police chase ensued over the course of 1.8 miles. Uh, and I'll put it very mildly or neutrally um, so that it's not a new fact the state that gets discovered in the state's brief. I'm not sure the court reads either statement of facts, honestly. I think that might be the function of the bench brief to give the court an idea of what actually happened. Uh, but no, I don't punt. I, I always want to, I think it's the most important section of the brief, really. It's the part where you make your client sympathetic. Mm, that, that, that's bold. Yeah, well, you know, if you have a good statement of facts, if you've really done a good job, then by the end of it, the court should be thinking, gosh, I hope there's some way I can help this guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure do that you, I've done that, but it's the goal. Do you extend the statement of facts through the trial? Uh, yeah. Like, like, do you reach the issues that you're going to raise in the statement of facts? In, in just like how that they happened? Yeah, I do. So every brief is like um, the event, the investigation, and the trial. That's how I split up all my statements of facts. Um, so that you get a, you know, you get a sense of what I'm complaining about. If the investigation section is really long, it's probably because I'm saying they didn't follow a bunch of leads or they, they did something wrong with the search. Um, and I I think there's, yeah, once again, it's good to give that, that head up, heads up of of where everything is. All right. Next lightning round issue, block quotes. Do you hate them or do you hate them? (laughs) I'll I'll do an occasional block quote. I mean, I I don't want to put 30 in my brief, but if a prosecutor says a bunch of bad stuff in a row, that's a block quote. Um, 
<laughs> with maybe some little pieces inside bolded to, to focus on how messed up it is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's my theory. I mean, I'll, you know, I'll say I almost, I, a lot of the time will just direct quote whatever section of the transcript it is. Mm-hmm. I have early on, I was very in favor of block quotes from cases until I realized like, even I'm not reading them as I review my brief before I file it. And like, if I, if I don't give a shit about it, then I, no one else is. You're right. It's rare that I closely read a block quote, but the trick to getting a block quote read is to set it up properly. So the reader knows why it's important. Um, so you should be, there should be a summary of the block quote. You know, the prosecutor described uh, the importance of the evidence uh, by saying it was a smoking gun below. And then you have that little block quote that, that, that has that. Um, hopefully you can give some, some of the flavor of the block quote, even if somebody doesn't read it. Um, and by setting it, setting it up, you kind of, yeah, you encourage people to actually look at it. Not from cases, though. I don't ever block quote from a case. I don't see why you haven't broken that out into a less than 50-word sentence. Well, Andrew Fleischman, better than the rest of us on the block quote. <laughs> <laughs> All right, ne- next lightning round issue, uh, uh, Microsoft Word, styles. Are you into that or not? I, I got no strong feels. I use Microsoft Word because it's the default. If you you know bashed in my computer with a baseball bat and maybe learned styles or something else, I'd, I'd be fine. Uh, I feel like no I have – like my ideal workflow would be I will I will write I'm, – I'm all Mac. And so I will write in Ulysses. I'll do all my stuff in Ulysses and then I'll move it over to Word and then just – and then that's it. My ideal workflow would be like using some type of like LaTeX, um, whatever they call it, template or whatever to like typeset the whole thing really nicely and um, – uh, unfortunately, uh, I, it, it is easier for me just to, you, you know, use the same appellate brief template that I've had. Yeah. You know, Microsoft Word is frustrating a lot of times. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like a weird spacing error will show up and I can't figure out why. Uh, or, or it's frustrating trying to move stuff from, you know, properly formatted from a case into it. You got to mess, mess with it a lot. I, I mean, uh, not the sound too infomercially but there's got to be a better way we just haven't figured it out yet well apparently the i learned this last week the um apparently the court of appeals uses word perfect huh yeah that's very like every, me. right like i really want to uh, you know I, I, it was on twitter and um i think chief chief judge dillard was was posting about it and i was like i can't believe you use word perfect i haven't seen one in 15 years and then like someone else like <laughs> Took a photo of their computer and was like, "Here you go, asshole." No, I didn't say that, but it was sense like, "Here you go." Well, um, Jim Bottom uses WordPerfect. Wow, and he's basically be, the best. I, I would be. Um, I would love to have a WordPerfect defender on here. Uh, you and, sh- you should have and, him on, and have someone pitch me on WordPerfect. Yeah, well, he's an amazing writer. Uh, you can't mention a case to him without him having like uh, at least a pretty good synopsis of what it is. Uh, I definitely more than once I've been like, Oh, this, I don't, I'm not sure what this issue is. And he points me in the direction of the winning issue in the case. Like he's an amazing guy. It's, it's unfair to have access to him. And it's a, one of the best things about that was about being an appellate public defender was having Jim Bonner across the hall. Mm-hmm. All right. Here's your last lightning round issue. Okay. Party name, party names in brief. Yeah. Or do you just say appellate party names for sure. Appellant. Once again, that's like stuff that's slow to say is also slow to read. It slows your reader down. Unless your guy has a really unusual 
name, you should just use his last name uh, or first name if there's sibling involved. I, I, there's cases where they're siblings. And so then, you know, I, I use the first name and then put a footnote. And I'm like, well, because they're all the same family, we can use first names for ease of use. I'm always like, I, I feel so much better about using first names because it is so much more engaging. You know, it doesn't read like some like FBI report or something. Right. You know, strive strong feelings about not using Mr. And Miss. That drives me nuts. Like if you're going to use party names, don't say, oh, it's Mr. Gorbachev. Just say Gorbachev. I think if you take out that oh, Mr., yeah. <laughs> it's, it's oh, yeah. less formal. And I feel like like our maybe federal court people will use Mr. and Mr. My Mr. and Mrs. Ms. Um, maybe that's like a, I don't know, maybe you get yelled at if you don't use it in federal court. But yeah, I'm with you. I mean, yeah, you want to take that off. Yeah. And, and first names, yeah, if they're siblings or whatever. Um, though it's really unfortunate. I've definitely had a lot of gang cases where people have very similar first and last names. And it's just, you almost want to put up a glossary because it's hard to... You know, you've got Dontavius and Quantavius Taylor, uh, or you know, like really close variations, and you're trying to make sure the court is, is paying attention to the difference between them. And it's hard. Mm-hmm. Well, Andrew, that was the end of our lightning round, and I've got to say, oh wait, here, let me do this. That was the end of our lightning round, and uh, I think you did well. Oh, good, good. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell my uh, family. <laughs> I'll be yeah. excited. Your your prize is in the mail. Oh you know? wow! Your, uh, congratulations, you've won an appeal with two good issues. <laughs> that's a, that's a <laughs> two good issues with uh, you know no five factor tests, just uh, the thing, and then you're done. Oh gosh, the the dream. Uh, not Barker v. Wingo. No, not at all. Oh. <laughs> well, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I appreciate talking to you and, and I feel like I learned a lot. So thank you very much. Well, thanks for the opportunity. All right.